Anyway, I'm going to ask two questions. I'll ask the first question first, and I'll ask the second question a little bit later. The first question is about what we celebrate on Hanukkah. What we celebrate on Hanukkah, I mean, of course, uh, Rabbi Sachs told us about the tour and about that famous question about why do we celebrate Hanukkah for eight days? And the miracle was only seven days. And there are endless answers that have been suggested for this question. But that's not the question that I'm interested in. The question that I'm interested in is, why celebrate a miracle from heaven? I mean, isn't it obvious? Isn't it almost simple to say that God could make the oil burn for eight days? I mean, of course God can make the oil burn for eight days. And that may be why in the tradition of things, it's not clear what we thank God for. Do we thank God for the miraculous end? Or do we thank God for supporting us in our efforts against the Greeks? It's not clear to me why the miracle achieves such prominence? I mean, it's true that we say Hallel every day on Hanukkah. But if you ask a kid in the street who is uh, kind of the product of an outstanding Jewish education, and you said, what's special about Hanukkah? I'm sure that oil would be part of his answer. And certainly for that kid who gets an outstanding Jewish education here in Eretz Israel, the idea of lighting the candles is much more impressive than the idea of saying Hallel every day. I mean, you know, lighting the candles is about fire. You know, children really like fire. I mean, they get over it. But for a while... They really like it. Whereas Hallel is about saying words that a lot of children don't always understand. Or if you understand some of the words, you don't understand all of the words. So there's no doubt that the words are an impediment to, for most people, to having a religious uh, experience. I mean, words. Words are a barrier. Light, fire, that's an opener. So I think that for most people, lighting the candles is more important than saying the hollow. And we ask again, how is it that the tradition was so careful about teaching us how to light the candles on Hanukkah? I did not consider so much the difficulty or the opportunity that we have in saying Hallel. So I wanted to tell you what the, what's printed in a, in a commentary on the riff. On a commentary on the riff, uh, the, it's called Talmide Rabbeinu Yonah. Rabbeinu Yonah was really the source of the commentary, but he didn't write it all, all down. 
So his Talmidim wrote it down, and the commentary is called Talmide Rabbeinu Yonah. It's the first text. Uh, he says, why is it that when you daven, it's like being Mechabel Pinea Shekhinah. It's like you, you're standing before the Shekhinah. And he wants to explain. So he has an opinion. His opinion is that it's hard for us. Even if we go to shul every day, and even in shul there's a sign that says, which is a kind of a sign that indicates decorum. Like, you know, don't, don't bother us. Just be quiet. That's Dalif Neimia Taumid. He says, nevertheless, nevertheless, Hashem is not near Allah Ayin. We don't have that awareness of the presence of God that we would like to have. Nirehu Gvurota But when God does something extraordinary, Suddenly, extraordinary means we know that it's extraordinary. It's not regular. So the Rabbi Yona says, You are generally hidden from us. But God, the God of Israel, is a redeemer. The God of Israel is a redeemer. Klomar. Even though God is usually hidden, You are the God who did miraculous things, and you redeem us again and again. And this redemptive process, Ro'imotcha, B'nei Adam, V'ata mitgalelahem, U'makirimotcha, and you become known to God, uh, to, to, to us, and we, we, uh, we recognize God's, we get, recognize God's presence. So the Talmidei Rabbeinu Yonah, had this explanation about miracle. A miracle is never about the miracle. The miracle is kind of irrelevant to the, to the enterprise. But what the miracle does is enable us to see God every place. All of a sudden, the world has changed. The miracle I mean, it's a miracle. If we would judge God by the miracles that God did. So we would say, Pach Shemin, eight days, that's a miracle. That's not even the beginning of the miracle, of anything really great. You know, the Beis HaLevi says, Beis HaLevi, his last name was Salvation. So I could say that here, right? I can mention the Beis the Besa lady says, he doesn't understand the whole problem. He says, couldn't they have taken the wicks? You know, wicks are usually made up of strands. 
had a lot of strands together. So they could have just like taken the strands apart and used a little bit of the wick as a wick. And then everybody understands it would burn a lot less oil. So what was it that the Beis HaLevi said? The Beis HaLevi said it wasn't the miracle. The miracle was inconsequential. It was that B'nai Yisrael wanted a miracle. They went out of their way. And they said, we're going to do it this way. Because the only way that it could work is if God produces a miracle. So the miracle had nothing to do with God's ability, so to speak. But the miracle was about enabling B'nai Yisrael. You know, people do things and sometimes they look good. You fight a war against the Greeks. And you beat down a few Greeks. It really looks good. But you know, in the long run, it didn't work out so well. We'll talk about that later on. But you know, the war was won. But after the war, not all the Jews were able to maintain their devotion to the, to the victory. But at that time, and this is the intention of the Beis HaLevi, at that time the Jewish people said, we want a miracle. Because we want to see that this victory against the Greeks was done with the divine imprimatur. Now it's true that people say that. They say, Yitz Hashem and Bezras Hashem. And, and, and they say that all the time. And, and, and there's no doubt that this expresses the profundity of their religious devotion. But it's not the same as if HaKadosh Baruch Hu comes down to you and says, this is the way you should go. And this is what you should do. So the Neirot Hanukkah represent the story of Hanukkah. And the story of Hanukkah was that everybody knew that it was God's will. Even people who might have been doubters or scoffers. So the first topic that we have discussed is the miracle. What's the meaning and the purpose of the miracle? And we used the Talmide Rabbi Yonah who said that miracles open us up to a real a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch. And to that we added what the Beit HaLevi said. The Beit HaLevi said that the name Israel demanded a miracle. They didn't come to the Beit HaMikdash and see a pach of Shem and a cruise of oil and say, well, there's not enough oil here. We have to wait eight days to get more oil. So we'll postpone. I mean, you don't want to light the menorah with a glitch, do you? You don't want to light the menorah and then put it out. That would be really a terrible thing. So B'nai Yisrael said, we demand a miracle. We want HaKadosh Baruch to be put on the spot, so to speak. We'll light the oil now. And in fact, that was part of the miracle. It was not just God's miracle. But as you know, they say in Hasidus, you need a Isarusa de letaka. Like the people have to be interested in the miracle for there to be a miracle. I mean, why would God do a miracle 
so to speak, to show off? I mean, what, what kind of sense does that make? But God did the miracle of the Parshema, which was totally irrelevant to the victory. And even, as you know, those of you who are scholars, know that there's this principle of Tuma Hutra B'Tzibur. And since all of the participants in the war were all Tmei'ei Nefer, they all came into contact somehow with a dead body or with a weapon that killed somebody. He said, since all of the people were in that category, the halacha is that you could use any kind of oil. You could use oil that is Tamei. I mean, what difference does it make? So what were B'nai Yisrael doing? There was such amaratsim that they didn't understand this. I mean, Yudah Maccabee didn't know. There was no one that came along and said, hey, use the regular oil. Use the oil that's Tamei. Nobody in the whole ought to believe. But somebody must have known. So B'nai Yisrael said, we don't want the leniency. We don't want the leniency. We want to do it right. And we're depending on a miracle. Yes, we are. We're not going to use the oil which we could use because that's not the best way to go. And so you know that in Hanukkah you have this special idea in Hanukkah that we light the candles Mahadrin Mina Mahadrin. Right? It's like this idea of Hidur Mitzvah. You say, you say, you know, we do a mitzvah, you know, somebody comes up and it says, I'll give a better way to do it. It'll just cost you more money. So we say, they always do that. They always try to get our money. I mean, who wants to do a Hidu mitzvah? What's wrong with the old way? My father did it this way. My grandfather did this way. I'm not going to knuckle under to the Bahadrin people. There's one exception. And that exception is Hanukkah. When Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel said, you have to do it Bahadrin, there was apparently no dissent. Everybody said, great. We'll do it Mahadrin. That's what we should do. Because that's what B'nai Yisrael did. They did it Mahadrin. They said, we don't want that oil. That regular oil. That oil that you buy in the supermarket. We don't want that oil. We want the oil. You have to go to some Jew in a little house in his basement and he's got oil. That's what we want. We want that. We want the oil, the oil that was made with Kavanah. With intention. Covered up for what? I don't know. I don't cover it up for, but that's what I want. I don't want the regular. I want the special. Uh, special? Does it have a lachic context to it? Maybe not. Is it special? Yes. It's special. And that's what Hanukkah was. That's what Hanukkah was. Hanukkah was to make in. Does that mean anything? I imagine that there was a war. And there were two guys who had a sword. Each had a sword, right? Each guy had a sword. One guy went like this. The other guy went like that. And, and the guy who was better at it, who happened to be one of Yehuda Maccabee's men, he, he did it better, and he knocked out the other guy. What does it have to do with Tmei'im Biyad Tahurim? What does that do to make Imbiatomi? So what it means, what Al Anisim says, is that these soldiers, they thought about it. They thought about it all eventually. 
We're all going to be tonight. We've got to maintain some notion of Tahara. And they found that opportunity when it came to lighting the menorah. They had that opportunity to maintain the distinction that there are two A-in and there are Tahorim. There are those who are not clean and perfect. And there are those who maintain themselves. Even in war, they're able to think. They're able to think. And I always say, I should tell this story. But I haven't told it for so many years that I guess I can tell it again. During the Lebanon War, I, this, this is a story I tell. You know, the Prophet Chaim wrote a book for soldiers. Chavis Chaim, he wrote a lot of books. He wrote a book for soldiers called Machane Yisrael. Now, you know, in, in Ukraine, in Russia, in uh, Belarus, in Lita, you know, those places, they used to conscript people, Jews, into the Russian army. And when you were conscripted into the Russian army, you went for 15 years. That was the basic conscription. And they thought, you want to be a soldier? Be a soldier. Are you going to be a soldier for a year? Be a soldier for two years? Doesn't work. Fifteen years. And they had this idea. The Russians. The Russians had this idea. That if you came from Ukraine, they would send you to Vladivostok. You know Vladivostok? Like it's on the way to Japan. It's the port, the eastern port city of... Why'd they do that? But they had this, they made this tremendous cheshbon. They said, when we give soldiers a vacation, we usually give them three days. Three day vacation. So if a soldier wanted to go from Vladivostok by train back to his house in Lita, it would take him more than three days. So that meant that he could never go home. Never. And if you could never go home, and you started out as a Orthodox Jew, what were the chances of you remaining Orthodox? So the Russians understood. And they had this organized. And the Jews also understood. The Jews worked very hard to keep their own children and members of the family out of the army. They didn't want them to go into, into the Russian army. And they somehow assumed, they assumed that... Uh, when you get into the army, there's no possibility. I mean, you can't maintain Shabbat and Kashrut. And you can't. It's just impossible. You're in Vladivostok. And you come from, you come from Lita, from Brisk, or from, uh, from Vilna. I mean, how could you possibly maintain? So the Chofetz Chaim wrote a book. The book in the introduction, what the Chofetz Chaim says is, listen, you should know we love you those of you who are in the army and we want to help you and we want you to understand that it's possible even under the difficult situation that you live in in the Russian army you can keep the mitzvot and you can do what you have to do and you can eat kosher food you can eat Shabbat and he wrote a whole book he wrote a whole book on this basis he didn't say that you should go on strike or picket or, uh, or write your congressman about religious freedom. He didn't say that, but he said that you can do it. The Chavetz Chaim, the Chavetz Chaim had this capacity to feel 
that every Jew had a place. And that if he'd helped a little bit, every Jew would be able to withstand that pressure. So you know when I was in, uh, when I was here or there, you know, I've spent uh, uh, much, much time in my own life trying to avoid responsibility. So I like to be someplace else. You know, people think I'm here, I like to be there. You know, it's sort of like, um, I don't think it's a good habit. But, but I, I recognize it in myself as a fault. So during the, the war in Lebanon, I was a, a chaplain. I was a chaplain. You know, the job of the chaplain of the Israeli army is to pick up Rahman al-Islam, is to take care of the dead bodies. That's what a chaplain does. And he extended his, uh, his uh, duties to annoy people. Right? You can also, if you want to be an annoy people, you should become a chaplain because you have a lot of opportunity to annoy people. You can go around and say, this food is not kosher, and the lulav is no good, and, uh, and don't do it. You, know, you can do things like that. You know, people, uh, people I, I, I wasn't into that so much. But I, I, I remember, I remember I was a chaplain in the tank corps. This is not an advertisement from the army. I mean, this is a story. You know, stories, they come out this way sometimes and that way sometimes. This is a story. So when I was in, in, in Lebanon, I was in Lebanon, the Lebanese war. So, the, so I was introduced as being the rabbi. Lines of guys came up to ask me, childless about what about the fruit that we're driving a tank through a orchid orchard and it's got apples are we allowed to eat them or not allowed to eat them and I said oh my goodness imagine if the Chavetz Chaim was here what the Chavetz Chaim would say like how the world like there's a different world and even though we have a lot to criticize in the world that we live in, and you know that, after all, we're Jewish. So if we're not eating, we're criticizing. I mean, that's our, that's our modus vivendi, right? That's all there is. Nevertheless, it's remarkable. It's remarkable how in the hundred years we moved from being in an army where to maintain a modest level of religious devotion you had to hide out. You had to do it under a table. You had to do it under a table. I remember Osher Weiss once said that when the Flossenberger Rebbe was in, was in, uh, in the uh, concentration camp, so he got together with a few other people. They wanted to make matzah. They wanted to make matzah for Pesach. So they each collected a little bit of flour, you know, like... They worked in the kitchens. There was always a little flour left over, and they baked the matzah in, the, in, the, in there, wherever they were. And, and they had matzah and pesel. That's what he said. I said, I remember. He said, "It's probably true that that piece of matzah was not kosher lemahadrin." He said, "But Bashamayim, they loved that piece of matzah." That was the best piece of matzah ever. That's what Oshavai said. Oshavai is a chassid. He's not a kalbach chassid, but he's a chassid. And that's what he said? That's what he said. So I think that, um, that this is part of like whether you walk with God or you don't have to, don't walk with God, 
has very little to do with the reality of things. It has to do with what you see in the world. If you see it's a miracle, and, and, and there are miracles all over the place, then you walk with God. That's what the Talmud of Abeniyana said. But if you think that everything is not the way it should be, and it's no good, and it's bad, so you say, in that kind of world, God has no place. God's not going to make a mess of the world that we live in. So that's the miracle of the Pachshem. I'd like to ask another question, if I may. And that question is, uh, just a second. It's about the, the dreams. The parashiot of Ayeshev and Miketz have dreams in them, and these dreams are on the sheet that you have in front of you. First, there's the dream of Yosef. We all know the dream of Yosef. Pasuk Vav Alehem Shimuna Chalom Asher Chalamti. Yosef said, I had a dream. Vinei Anachnu Malmim Alumim Betochasadeh. We're tying together these sheaves of, of wheat. One got up. And yours bowed down to mine. And they continued to hate Yosef. Now, Listen, you have to understand what the Torah is saying. And the thing that the Torah is saying on the simple pshat level is, and this is Braslav uh, Hasidus, and Rav Nosson says it, I mean, I mean it's, it's in all the sparim that I'm used to learning. Which are not so many, but a few. The, a dream doesn't mean that you don't understand it. After all, when the brother said, that's exactly what the dream said. So the, the, it was not like the brothers are saying, we understand it this way. Is there another way to understand it? No. The brother said, we understand the dream exactly. So that the nature of a dream is that you understand it. That's the nature of a dream. Because if you didn't understand the dream, it wouldn't annoy you. It wouldn't bother you. It would be a topic of conversation at breakfast. That's what it would be. It's when you understand the dream that it annoys you. And the brothers we know understood the dream perfectly. He said, there's the sun and the moon and the stars, and they're all bowing down to me. Now, is there any question that everybody understood what this dream meant? That Yosef understood it, the brothers understood it, and certainly Yaakov Avim understood it. Vayigarbo avi vayomelo ma chalom azeh shechalamta 
הבואו נבוא אני ועמך ואחיך להשתחוות לך ארצה. אצלו פרשנים, אבל אני לא יודע אם יעקב אבינו מדבר simply or whether he was a little bit sarcastic or he was trying to deflate the, the, the feelings amongst the brothers <coughs> but any way you would say it Yaakov Avinu understood perfectly what the dream was he had a situation he had a situation Yosef understood the brothers understood and Yaakov Avinu understood and in spite of that Yosef was sold as a slave to Egypt. Did they understand? They certainly should have. The second set of dreams is the Sarha Ofeh Sara Mashkeh. And here, again, everybody understood the dream. The Sarha Mashkim Pasuket, he has a dream. And he dreams about a vine. And the vine had three uh, branches. And then, Tos par obi adi pasuk yud alif. Ve'kach edan avim ve'shchot otam al tos par obi. Ve'tele tos al kaf par obi. I made wine, or I made grape juice, and I gave it to par obi. Ve'yom elo yosef, ze'pitrono. Where is ze'pitrono? Don't we understand what this dream says? It's good. Here's a guy who's in jail. He had a job. He was the Sarah Mashkim, whatever that means. I guess he took care of the wine. Maybe he tasted it to make sure that Pyro was not going to get poisoned. I mean, it says in the dream, I took the grapes, I made the wine, I gave it to Pyro. So now, it doesn't take a sooth to, or a sleuth. Yeah, it doesn't take either one of them to figure out, to figure out that this is like a great dream for the Sarah Mashkim. The Sarah Mashkim is in. He's getting his old job back. Then the other guy comes. The other guy comes and he says, Vayar Sarah Ophim, Pasuk Tedzayin, Kitov Patah, you know, Sarofim, he thought that there's a trick. He's really, you know, out of it. He doesn't know what's going on. He thinks that Yosef interpreted the dream. But Yosef didn't interpret the dream. The dream is obvious. So the Sarofim says to Yosef, I had also had a dream. And there are three of these uh, Salim with holes in them. And then... I have all this cake, high caloric stuff that Paro likes. And the bird is eating them. So Yosef says, too bad. I guess you're not getting your old job back. In fact, you're probably going to get killed. Okay. Now these dreams get Yosef ultimately to where he wants to be. But how does he get there? How does he get there? So you have to see the third dream. Third dream? You have to turn the page. I tell you many times that these etchings, these remnant etchings, are not my doing. So if you don't like them, don't blame me. But if you do like them, 
I'll take a little bit of the credit also. But it says, So now the king of Egypt, he had a dream. This is his dream. Fat calves, right? Fat calves. That's what came out. And then there were these miserable looking, skinny, undernourished uh, uh, cows. And this is the only dream in which somebody woke up. I mean, you might think that dreams are always, that they must have all broken up, that Yosef must have also woken up. Maybe. But it doesn't say in the Chumash that he woke up. It just said that he had a dream. The only one who woke up in the Chumash is Paro. Is Vayikatz Paro. And then Paro has another dream. And this time it's like very similar, it's about Shibalim. Good-looking ones and bad-looking ones. The bad-looking ones eat up the good-looking ones. Vaykatskaro. Again. He's wake, woke, he wakes up. Vimechalo. Okay. So now I say to you this. I want to say something about these dreams. <coughs> I want to say something about these dreams. Dreams are about the future, but they don't contain, they don't contain within them the method for dealing with the future. It's reasonable to say that if in heaven they allow me to dream the future, what purpose could there be? What purpose could there be to allowing me to dream the future if only to encourage me to find a way to deal with that future? So if we start from the last dream, the dream of Paro, we have to say, Paro also understood the dream. And Vayikats Paro means that he wanted to get himself out of the world of the dream and get into a better world. A world where the dream would not make any difference. So really when he asked Yosef to interpret the dream for him, what he was really asking Yosef to do was, what do I do about this dream? How do I deal with the dream? And Yosef told him. Yosef told him what he should do. And in fact, the dream was overcome. He says, that's Yosef. Yosef had the power not to understand the dream, because Paro also understood the dream. But Yosef had the power to react to the dream. To see in the dream a direction, a directive. The dream meant that God wanted us to do something. And that the dream meant if you don't do anything, this is what's going to happen. But if you do something, you could save yourself. 
you could change everything. But if we look back at the first dream, we look back at the first dream, the dream of Yosef that he told his brothers, there is no vayikas in that dream. We'll leave out the middle dream for the time being. We'll just deal with the first and the third, because there's not enough time. The first dream, Yosef doesn't wake up. He doesn't wake up, which means that there's no world of the dream which is distinct from the world of reality. In other words, the dream has to happen. It has to happen. And what was it that forced Yosef to tell the dream to his brothers? I mean, didn't Yosef understand that the brothers would be unhappy? So, we have to agree about Malchut, about kingship. After all, what did the, what did the dream say? The Jews said that Yosef was going to be a king, and the brothers would all bow down to him. Now, what was it that Yosef wanted to explain to the brothers? Yosef wanted to explain to the brothers that this is good for them. Malchut is unifying. Malchut creates a community. When the Jews came to Shmuel and Avi and said, the time has come. We want to have a melech. We can't just have a wanderer wandering around and judging people in Beersheba sometimes, in Yerushalayim sometimes, in, in Ramah sometimes, Shmuel, Hanavi. We can't have that. What we need is a stable situation ordained by a melech. And Malchut has a lot of negative sides to it. But it has one wondrous aspect. And that is that it's a unifying force. It brings everybody together. And so Yosef came to his brothers and said, Listen, this is a wonderful thing. We're going to have Malchut. And Malchut means we'll be together forever. Your children and my children will all be together under the banner under the banner of the Melech. Melech al kol ha'aretz. We say in Rosh Hashanah. Yom Kippur. Mekadesh Yisrael. That the Melech al kol ha'aretz is not just God, but the unifying force that is the potential within HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Mekadesh. That's what it does. It gives everybody a feeling of sanctity. So the story is, Yosef went to his brothers and he said, listen to this news I've just received. I'm going to be the Melech. Melech now, before we get to Eretz Yisrael, before we conquer the land of Canaan, before we establish the boundaries, before we give out the land to the different tribes where they have a Melech. Isn't that wonderful? And the Jews, the other Jews, the brothers, didn't understand what Yosef was saying. And this is different than the dream of Ayikat's Paro. Because the dream of Ayikat's Paro said, Paro had a dream. But Yosef is going to make sure that it's not going to come true. That the dream will remain part of dreamland. And that the dream will not come true. And so this will help us to understand the Rambam. The Rambam 
go here and there, the Rambam says things that are hard to understand. Usually the Rambam is wondrously easy to understand. But in this case, it's hard to understand. The first halacha, it's not on the sheet, but the first halacha, you all know it, is Hilchot Chanukah, which is printed here as Parag Gimel of Megillah and Chanukah. Bevayat Sheni. Shemalchut Yavan Gazrub Zerot al Yisrael. It was in the Second Temple period. And the kingdom of, of Greece uh, denied uh, uh, the Jews certain kind of religious freedom. Biklutatam. Right, sets the scenes. There was a bad situation in at, at the time of Hanukkah. They went into the Beit Hamikdash and they did terrible things. Until God had mercy on them, on them meaning mercy on the Jews. That's what happened. The Greeks were the Greeks. The Jews rose up. The Jews were able to, uh, to engage the Greeks. And they beat them in war. Now listen what the Rambam says. And one of the offshoots of this war was Malchut. Suddenly, there was again a king in Israel, one of the Chashmonaim. Yeter al Matayim Shana ad Churban Hashini, 165 BCE, approximately, maybe a little later, until 70 the destruction of the temple there was Malchut so of course anybody knows any history anyone and the Rambam knew this history because it's printed in various sources that were available there including the Babylonian Talmud everybody knows that those years are not years that we are proud of those years of Malchut are not years that we look back on and say, ah, what a great achievement of the Hashemonaim, Malchut be Yisrael. No, no, we tend to ignore the history. Not because it's not true. Not because we don't know it, but it's painful. It's painful for us to remember. So when we tell the story of Hanukkah, it begins and it ends with the menorah. We don't mention really Maybe in some paragraph of Bo's Tzur. But we don't really mention kingship as being a great benefit of the Hasmonean battles. But the Rambam, who had a wondrous sense of things, wrote in his book, Listen, I want you to remember that there was a king in Israel for about 200 years after the Hasmonean. And apparently, what the Rambam needs to teach us is what Yosef had hoped to teach his brothers. And what Yosef had hoped to teach his brothers was that Malchut is a wondrous opportunity. 
It keeps the family together. It maintains a kind of unity of purpose. It gives us a sense that we're going someplace together. And that will enable us, that will enable us to make the world a different place to live in. So when Paro dreamt, Vahikat's Paro, he knew that he could avoid the dream, that he could deny the dream. He just had to find somebody who had the key, and that was Yosef. But when Yosef spoke about his dream to his brothers, he thought they would understand. He thought they would all agree. Wow, what a wondrous thing. Before you get to Eretz Canaan, before you get to Kibush Haaretz, Rechavutat Eretz Israel, before all of that, where are you? You have Malchut. And Malchut is a, is a quality that joins the Jews together. It's not always positive. It's not always, it's not always that the king is a good person. No, that's not true. We know that that's not true. But when the institution of Malchut exists, the sense that we are unified in our purpose, in our direction, that's something that's wondrous. But the brothers didn't understand that. And the brothers, in their own history, did whatever they could to uh, tear apart the family, to make it impossible to be together. And eventually, the dream of Yosef was the winning hand. Because not only did the brothers and Yaakov Avinu bow down to Yosef, but they lived together, separate from others, but together with each other. And living together with each other, they were able to protect the notion that there was a Melech in Israel. So the Rambam said to us, look, there are different ways to judge things. And that's true about us today in Eretz Yisrael, with Medinat Yisrael. And it's true as well. You know, judgment is made in different ways when you look upon something in a particular way. Sometimes, you know, two people, one sees good, but the other sees bad. And they're both right. They're both telling you exactly what they see. And they're telling it to you correctly. So the Rambam didn't say, no one ever told me that the Hashmanayim era was something that we should not be proud of. No one ever told me that the kings, that the Hashmanayim kings were bad people. No, he knew, knew very well. He said, you know, Kingship is this great opportunity of unifying the people together. Just as in modern times, you might say, and not, uh, certainly not claiming this on behalf of the Rambam, but you might say that democracy, the system, is such an institution. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, we have a sense that we have to act together. And we have to act together for our benefit. And that even though we never will agree with each other about what it is that we have to do, the system 
nevertheless draws us together. So the Rambam understood it. And that's what Yosef tried to explain to his brothers. Paro also understood it. Because Paro's dream was of another sort. The kind of dream that could be usurped and denied. And so I wish you all a happy Hanukkah. Uh, so that's all the